Hi, I'm the host, Chip James. And I'm the producer, Katie Matthews. And if you're anything like us, you have a heart for Dayton, Ohio. And maybe you've been looking for a place where you can hear more about the interesting people and businesses that make Dayton such a special place to call home. Well, that's why we created the new Dayton podcast to celebrate a new era in our great town. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy. Back when a podcast was just a dream, one of my ideal targeted guests was this guest that we have today named Chris Wire. Chris is such an influential guy. Anybody who's ever had a one-on-one chat with Chris knows that he's such a deep thinker and he's such an innovator that he's just a pleasure to be around. He's the type of person that um, just makes you want to go do something you're passionate about, makes you want to go create something. So who is Chris Wire? Chris uh, doesn't love titles, but I call him the leader. Uh, the owner of one of Dayton's coolest companies, and that's basically an ad agency called Real Art. And Chris uh, has guided that organization and overseen projects with international companies such as uh, Converse and Lowe's. Uh, Chris did an amazing TEDx talk uh, back in 2014 at TEDx Dayton. Uh, called Curiosity Fuels Creativity. I was in attendance that day and really remember that being one of the highlights of that TEDx. Just really, just classic deep thoughts from Chris Wire. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And honestly, I hope that this leads to uh, chances for me to have more conversations with Chris Wire. You were a student at UD. You got an internship at a place called Real Art. Mm-hmm. And then you bought the place. Yeah. Can you give me the true story behind that? The, the true Hollywood story? I mean, that's uh, pretty accurate. Um, so I was, uh, I guess it was, again, probably between, uh, between my junior and senior year, uh, well, last year of college. Uh, I had been interning out a place in Yellow Springs called Antioch Publishing. They made like, like bad Garfield bookmarks and book plates. <laughs> Uh, and I was working in the stat room and doing key lines and things like that. And I learned, learned so, so, so much there. Um, and it was really good experience. But a uh, professor of mine, Theo Williams, uh, was uh, also the owner or the founder of Real Art. And, um, you know, I was going to class and she was looking for interns. And I was like, hey, that sounds cool. So I started interning there. Um, and, you know, it was probably first semester of uh, my fourth year of school and she had allowed us, or me I guess, to use the studio for any kind of other freelance work or school work or things like that, which was awesome, right? I mean like great environment to actually work in a studio and, and do other projects. Where was it located then? Um, it was over in the Oregon District. Um, do you know where Jay's is? It was yeah. right across the street from that. So right before you moved into the building you're in now, it was still in that? Yeah, yeah, we I were there that. until like, what, six, seven years ago when we yeah. moved. Uh, we just kind of t- kept taking over like larger and larger portions of it of or that other building, buildings. Yeah. But, but originally her condo was in there too. Okay. Uh, so I was working late one night. She walked out of what was like, I guess her living room into the kitchen kind of threw something across the room. She had a bit of a temper at times, uh, but really brilliant person. Uh, and she said something along the lines of, take all this off my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a small business. My, my folks owned a hardware store. I worked there since I was a little kid. Uh, and you know, I always maybe thought that I'd 
own a business. I don't know why, but it was just kind of like that's how you grew up, right? Yeah, you watched your parents do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so at the time, I really probably wasn't going to as many classes as I should have. Uh, I'd withdrawn <laughs> from a whole lot. I was freelancing, and I just I I was kind of burned out on school. And so mm -hmm. I sat her down, and I was like, Hey, if you're serious, like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you about it. So. Literally within, you know, probably a month or two, we had drawn up an agreement. And wow. I mean, I didn't realize at the time that, that the company wasn't, you know, super well respected um, creatively, didn't realize that there were some financial problems, right. uh, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, I went ahead and did it. Was it pretty localized back then? Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, we were doing, you know, print work um, for some, some local grocery stores and little things here mm -hmm. and there and, uh, you know, but but it was a really great foundation, right? So and did you step in as a senior in college, like maybe in the next couple of months in, a, in your like running the place? Like you were known in no. the office as the boss or how did that transition work? Not exactly. Um, you know, I, I stepped in, um, you know, basically bought into the company with a little bit of sweat equity. Got and it. then there was a transition plan over time. Uh, you know, I came in and there was a, a really great uh, art director there at the time that I learned a whole lot from. Uh, and it did get a little awkward because, you know, I guess I was coming in and and was sort of, I, I hate to use the word boss. I hate the word boss now. Like Leader. Andy calls me boss, um, mm -hmm. it drives me nuts. Um, but yeah. Um, you were coming in as a pretty young kid and gonna lead this, this organization or this small business. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what it was, and I mean, I probably had a little bit of arrogance, um, a whole lot of ignorance, um, but we didn't know what we didn't know. Um, I didn't know any better than to not think that we could do amazing things, uh, and slowly was really just able to recruit some, some really incredible designers, some really wonderful people um, that were better than me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe inspire them to like, we could all do great things. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of how it started. So we started really, you know, in that print world. And then I got personally really interested in, in um, well, we called it multimedia back then. Yeah. Um, it was CD-ROM development. Okay. Um, like that probably predates everybody. Um, and then it moved into the web. Uh, but at the core of everything that, that we did, we always kind of believed in this, this idea of, of experience, creating something never before seen something really unique that like stops people in their tracks right. uh, and then once we have them then then we could kind of tell a brand story and drive some sort of action and, and that's kind of what we built the business around awesome. so it's been it's been a cool ride did so, you lean on your parents when this whole transition was happening you mentioned that they had owned a, a hardware store where was that uh, up in ada uh it's about an hour and a half north of here um not really um you know i sat down and talked to my dad mm -hmm. uh because he actually had almost a similar story. He mm -hmm. graduated from college, had put himself through college working at that hardware store, went off, uh, worked for uh, a large telephone company, uh, designed one of the first computer-controlled switching mm -hmm. systems for telephones, and then realized he wasn't like a big company person. Yeah. Uh, so he went back to the hardware store and said, hey, I, I, I want to come back. And the guy that owned the place at the time said, well, only, only if you want to buy it. And mm -hmm. so he did. So I asked my dad about it, and I think there was a little bit of like, hey, don't you want to finish school? And right. um, Not that it was really a thing then, but I guess I viewed it a little bit like, you know, leaving early to play 
like pro ball or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I can always go back and get sure. my school. It's good analogy. Um, which is funny because I actually am starting school again. Oh, really? Yeah, so I've got two kids in college and now I'm going to be too. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, he, he understood and he was like, go do your thing. Um, but honestly, they are so busy. They still, they work probably 80 hours a week. They still run the store today? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, they work so hard and, and it's really, it's really a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a small town and it's, it's this great kind of anchor for the community. And, you know, they're the ones that people call at, you know, two o'clock in the morning when, when their pipes freeze right. or when they need something and, you know, they go down and unlock it. And yeah. it's, it's a cool little town. They're problem solvers. Yeah. Yeah. And you became a problem solver. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I mean, maybe a lot of the kind of demeanor of, of real art may kind of stem from that, mm -hmm. that maker, builder, we can figure it out vibe because, I mean, as kids, our our toys were tools. Right. Um, you know, our entertainment was taking things apart that we didn't really know how to put back together, but we'd figure it out. Um, I remember walking numerous times into the house and there'd be like a transmission laying across the <laughs> kitchen table. Uh, and, you know, it's not that he was a particularly great mechanic, but you know, out of necessity, figured out how to do stuff. And yeah. I think we learned that from him. I have a brother-in-law who, as a kid, you know, his mom would come into the kitchen and he's like seven and mm -hmm. he's taking apart the toaster. Yeah. She well, why'd you do that? And he's like, well, I just wanted to put it back together. So that's one type of person, right? That sounds like you. I looked at a toaster, even to this day, I look at it almost like it's magic. Like, I don't really get it. Like, to me, it's just a magical thing. Yeah, where does that come <laughs> from, though? Is that like... Is that innate? I mean, are you born with that curiosity or like fearlessness to do it? Mm -hmm. Or do you think it's taught to you? I think you're born with it. I think that our brain comes up on a problem and that problem's like a wall, right? And to me, I'll poke into that wall a couple of times and then I might turn around and try to go a different way. Whereas like my brother-in-law's brain or your brain might go to that wall and go, ooh, here's a challenge. I wonder if I can go through it. I wonder if I can go over it. I wonder if I can go around it and you problem solve it. I wonder, I, I mean, I, I think that's a plausible answer, but there is part of me that believes that you can either teach or inspire fearlessness, right? And like, mm -hmm. that's what it boils down to. Like, I mean, even if I'm working on a motorcycle or something, uh, there've been times where I'm like, oh, I, you know, I'm not qualified to do this. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And like. What if all these things happen? And then you're like, it's a machine, right? Yeah. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Is I can really screw it up, and then right. I got to take it to a mechanic anyway, right? You know, so right. I, I'm no Might worse as well off. Try. Yeah. And yeah. So we've we've recently started. My wife and I have really started honing in on this idea behind the only skill, the only talent that really matters from the from the childhood age to when you transition to an adult is grit. It's hard oh, work. Oh, I like that. Right? So, like, I got really good at, or quote-unquote, really good at basketball. That does nothing for me today. Uh, but can, what did you take from it, right? Right. But the hard work, the grit that mm -hmm. I learned from it is far more important than being able to make three-pointers. Yeah. Right? And so, I think the critical thinking, the problem solver, the um, we'll figure it out, that is just sort of, you, you had it at a younger age. I'm, I'm 38 and I'm trying to get there today. Like I'm trying to become, okay, here's a problem. I'm not used to this. Yeah. Now I'm going to try to figure it out because I've seen people like you or other people in my life who maybe have inspired that grit to not turn around, walk away from it and just go around, but like try to get yeah. through the problem. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a really beautiful thing. I mean, if if there was something that we were going to impart to you know our kids mm -hmm. or you know our coworkers, things like that, is that that you can figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. And that you know, think about how many experts there are. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, man. I, certainly, there's experts in medicine or you know physics and things like that, that that are really deep. But there are so many things that people are self-proclaimed experts in. Right. Uh, and they might not really have that much more knowledge than you. They're just willing to like stand up and say, I know how to do this or I'm gonna figure it out. Right. So it's like, how do you how do you create more of those mm -hmm. in the world around you? Um, that could be a really beautiful thing, not just for maybe a business that you're a part of or your family, but like for a community, right? Mm -hmm. How do you how do we inspire more of that in Dayton? Right. Yeah. That that you can do it. Right. That you know there is nothing holding you back. Um, you just have to go try. Um, so, do you know who Reid Hoffman is? No. Reid Hoffman is the founder of LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, since LinkedIn did what LinkedIn did, he sort of just backed out. I think he's on the board now or whatever, but he's an mm -hmm. angel investor. He's one of those um, types who is in Silicon Valley and he's investing in all yeah. these new tech startups. But Reid Hoffman is famous for saying that the person at the top of an organization needs to be a truth teller. Mm hmm. What does that mean? means they need to go into the situations at real art or the projects that are going on at real art and be able to just tell the truth about what's going on and and not pull punches and say it's pretty good keep working like actually speak truth into it yeah and i'm adding to that i think that they need to be a truth teller and they need to be a problem solver because at the top of every organization i don't care if it's uh, the number one company in the world or a startup there's problems there's fires yeah. to put out reed likes to say reed hoffman likes to say uh, launching a company is like jumping out of a uh, jumping out of an airplane um, with no parachute and building your new plane on the way down. <laughs> right. So he's he's constantly talking about like the challenges of of startups and just sort of taking your company to the next level. Um, when Andy talked to me about you a little bit, Andy Nick, shout out. Um, I he didn't say he obviously didn't know I was going to talk about Reed Hoffman, but he really made it sound like you're an ultimate truth teller. Like you can look at a project that somebody is working on and actually know it better than they know it and know the future of that project better than they know it. Huh. Um, well, that's nice of him to say. Um, I don't know whether I'm always a truth teller, though. I mean, I think what, um, what is sometimes easy for me is to be able to see the end state and very quickly plot a course to that. Now, is it always the best course? Is it the most direct? Um, maybe not, right? Um, but look, I, I didn't found LinkedIn, so where you know, who am I to mm -hmm. argue with? Is it Reed? Yeah, Reed. Sorry, Reed. I, <laughs> I should probably know you better. Um, but but I think sometimes uh, maybe maybe truth telling isn't as important in the moment uh, as you know, inspiring people to reach that goal, right? So like, you know, if you're sitting down talking to a designer, you know, they very well may know the truth, right? Mm -hmm. But they're trying not to believe that mm -hmm. current truth because they have to be in a certain place, a certain space in order to imagine and create, you know, what it is the, that the end game is. And mm -hmm. I think that 
you know, just reminding people that it's not there mm -hmm. or that, you know, uh, you're totally off the rails. I, I think that that's only a small portion of it. Mm -hmm. Then you need to get them into the space where they believe that they can accomplish that final thing. Mm -hmm. And I would say, personally, I, I kind of believe that's more important. Cool. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, uh, creatives, it, it's a really, it's an interesting field, right? Because so much of it is emotional. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we used to tell this story, like, I don't know if you remember um, Sesame Street, but there was a guy, or there was a puppet on there, uh, called Guy Music. Yeah. And, you know, he would start to play, be like, Mary had a little, and then you go, oh, no, I'll never get it, and smash his head on the piano. And, you know, all the that. kids would be like, it's lamb, yeah. and he could not get that, right? And if you've got somebody that you're working with, you know, it's on your team or whatever, that is in that mode, uh -huh. your job is not to tell them, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not what you're saying right now. You know, right. that's, that's not right. It's, it's more to get them to believe that they will find that answer. Yeah, discovery. Yeah. Sort of helping people. Do you think you help uh, creatives at Real Art self-discover? Is that part of what you do? I, I think on, on my best days I do. Um, you know, I hope that, that over time, um, each of them learn how to put themselves in in that right space. So, you know, uh, I mean, you mentioned it before. I mean, Joni, um, you know, is is really very deep into yoga, particularly uh, on the other side, meditation. Mm -hmm. Those things that that put yourself in a place where you can take action or assess yourself. I think that um, being a creative is is similar, right? You have to be able to learn enough about yourself to, to be able to put yourself in a space to, to solve those problems. Yeah. And I think that comes as you mature as a, as a designer. Yeah, I'm imagining, so if we were to be flies on the wall at Real Art, say tomorrow, and just sort of watch all of the activity and sort of watch you work and things like that, I don't know, maybe you'll, you'll tell me the truth here on this one, but I feel like you probably wear a lot of hats. I do, um, sometimes, you know, uh, at certain phases in the company or at times more one than another. Yeah. Um, there are some that I enjoy most. That's what I was going to ask. Instead of like, what are they? What's the one you like to wear? Like when you have this hat on, you're at your happiest at work. Um, I know this about me that I like making things. Yeah. Um, so whether that is, you know, creating a solution for a client, whether that's physically being, you know, over in the shop building something, like, I, I didn't get into this, honestly, because I wanted to own a business. I, right. I really derive very little personal pleasure from, uh, from numbers and P&L and, mm -hmm. you know, even the success of the business. And I know that sounds weird. I mean, I, 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 love, um, I love watching the company evolve. I love seeing um, the people on the team, like, get it or flourish or grow. Mm -hmm. Um, I love when we win, right? Mm -hmm. um, I like all those things, but like for me to feel personally fulfilled in life, I have to make something. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking earlier about like what are those truths about you? That is probably, that's probably my number one truth. Mm -hmm. That like if I'm not doing that 
at work or I'm not doing that in my current job, then I go and seek that out in other places. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'll build furniture or I'll, mm-hmm. I'll make this little thing or I'll take over a kid's you know, school project, whatever it is. <laughs> like, I have to make something. Um, you know, why? Is that because like, because I need to see or feel something tangible? Is it, is it this desire for like, like approval or admiration from others or like, you know, there's probably some really dark, weird sure. psychological things that are behind it, but I do know that it's important to me. So that's, yeah. it's at, also, at real life, that's the most important thing for me. It's awesome. I mean, and you grew up, you grew up working in a hardware store, a family owned hardware store. Yeah. Where I'm sure you got to see things being made and got to play a part in making some things. And Yeah. Um, yeah, it probably it, it very easily could stem from that. Have your mom and dad uh, been? Do they do they visit the Dayton area? Have they been inside? Real yeah, life? here and there. Oh yeah, for sure. Do they um, feel like maybe their fingerprints are on it a little bit? Wow, that's that's a good question. Um, I, mean, I hope that they do. Yeah, to an outsider, it feels like it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I I would look at them as like the like the archetype and the model for yeah. so many things that, that I believe in and um, the way that, that I want to be and carry myself. I mean, um, we have an interesting family. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fine thing, it's, it's good, right? But like, we're not like super close. Like we don't call each other every week, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there's this understood love and connection that's there and I think mutual respect. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love, what they've done, and I love what they've given my brother and, and, and me over the years. Mm. Um, there's this, there's this, this photo that is kind of etched into my brain. Um, so I grew up. I mean, I was born in '71. Uh, so obviously, a lot of childhood was in the '70s, yep. and in the '70s in Ohio, you know, we had some big blizzards. And albeit, you know, only 90 miles north of here, Ada gets way more snow. Um, and there's this photograph from the front page of the Ada Herald of my dad pushing this massive snowblower down Main Street to like clear the street. Main and road. Then, yeah. And it's like that, I don't know, man, that still sticks with me today. And like um, the way that they have a sense of purpose and community uh, and to do good, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I always try to hold myself up against that and and try to to meet that bar that mm-hmm. I don't know that I will um, cool. but it's they're they're the foundation for all of that yeah that's awesome I think that real art has an impact on Dayton in a similar way maybe not as tangible as, as pushing a snowblower down Main Street but from the outside looking in Daytonians look at real art and they see some of the names of the companies that you guys have been fortunate enough to work with and and these are very recognizable brands like Converse like Audi, like uh, Lowe's. Yeah. How does real art attract um, clients like that? Um, well, it really comes down to the to the work product, right? I mean, first and foremost, um, the team at Real Art has done some really incredible work over the years. I mean, um, and I can I've gotten to a point where I I can feel comfortable saying that there's. There's certainly a whole lot of me personally, and I think it's it's kind of spilled out into sometimes uh, the demeanor of the company, which isn't always good. Is like a little aw shucks, you know, like oh, you know, we do this stuff here and mm-hmm. there, and we're trying to get better. And but but maybe with a little bit of time and maturity, I've gotten to a point where I can look 
at, at what the team's done. And maybe I tricked myself uh, a little bit by separating myself from it and saying, well, I didn't really have anything to do with it. You know, <laughs> those guys did it right. right. Um, so I can boast about it. And it's, there's some really great stuff. Mm -hmm. And so using that, the, those, those pieces that have been created that have been uh, beautiful, that have been smart, uh, that have been successful and, and solved those clients' needs, then you know, it, it falls on, on me and, and Tom and a handful of others to go share that work with, with other people. And, mm -hmm. and I think that we've gotten to a point now where we're not, we're not as scared as we used to, to mm -hmm. go knock on a big company's door, mm -hmm. uh, particularly one that we think we can help, mm -hmm. um, that, that believes and, and views you know, marketing and advertising and, and creativity mm -hmm. uh, through the same lens that we do and say, hey, look, you know, we love your product, we love your service, we believe in what you're doing. Um, this is what we've done for other companies. Mm -hmm. We think we can help you and, and get that meeting. And so then, you cold pitch people? Yeah. Wow. Well, not as, uh, we've, we very uh, infrequently just knock on somebody's door with, you know, work or a great idea. Yeah. But we will go and say, hey, this is our book of work. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll explain uh, how we work, which I think is different mm -hmm. than a lot of companies. Uh, we are, I think, a little bit more laid back uh, and casual about certain things. Um, we do not build our company the same way that most large agencies build it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that's got some beautiful, wonderful advantages to it. It also causes some pain, mm -hmm. you know? Um, we have a company that has a lack of structure, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we take on things and you know believe that we can do anything in any amount of time, right. and that causes pain, stress. Uh, yeah. So after hours work. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does. But but you know, it's like anything else, right? Like you know, you'll have people like you. You know, you'll you'll look at, at our company and go, oh, it's awesome. You know, they get to it's like Willy Wonka's factory. They get to do all this mm -hmm. awesome yeah. stuff and. Everybody's like willy-nilly, just loves each other, and like you know, just figure it out, and it's awesome. Yeah. But with that, it, and it is awesome. Right? Good coffee, like, good snacks, yeah. good drinks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's awesome, but you pay the price for it in other aspects. And I think that that with anything, if if you're willing to look at it objectively, like for me, the the price that you pay in in some weekend work and some not knowing who's making the decision on a project and you know, the opportunity to do something really amazing that's never been done before, mm -hmm. I feel like that price is worth it for what we get to do in the outcome and, and the way that we get to work with, I mean, it, it's trite, right? And like every business is like, oh, it's a big family, blah, blah, blah. But like, I really, I mean, those people are my friends. I mm -hmm. mean, like, uh, those are the people that I want to, I want them to like what I come up with. Mm -hmm. I, those are the people that it, it matters the most um, to have. Like respect is a weird word, but like I, I want them to like um, think overused. that I'm smart, right? Yeah. Or or think that I'm good at what I do, um, and you know I because I do of them. Yeah. So you know for all of those things, I mean it it's not a real businessy environment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like you know, this collective at times. And yeah. we just try to get through the business side of it. And, and like I said, that's caused strife. It's caused pain. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, we could have probably made a whole lot more money. We probably could have been a whole lot bigger. 
Uh, in some instances, people could have been happier for other reasons if we had approached it a different way, mm -hmm. but it's not really who we are. Right. So um, I, I don't remember exactly what the question was, either. but... Um, but it goes back to what we said earlier, it's important to know who you are. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we do, and I don't know whether everybody all the time understands that that comes at a price, but I've, over time, become pretty comfortable with what that price is. Yeah. Still doesn't make the pain any easier at times, but I'm okay with it because I like, I like our ethos. I like the way that we go about yeah, it. Yeah, it's awesome. We want to we want to promote Dayton, and yeah. so uh, that's it, and, and show a, a, a brighter side of Dayton at a time when it really needs it. So, um, do you think it? I don't want to say do you think it needs it now. I'm sorry, I just interrupted you. No, but like, please. Man, like the momentum the that's momentum happening in this town right now. It was incredible. Like five years ago, I read in an interview, I loved what you said about Dayton. You said uh, that it's like an, an awkward teen. <laughs> I said that? Yeah. You That's, said Dayton's figuring itself out. It's trying yeah. to figure out who it is. So fast forward, present day is five years later after you said that, whether you remember it or not. It's, it's in the news, so it, it must have So happened. it's like just uh, legal age now. Yeah. So like early drink. 20s. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's probably still accurate, right? Because in your 20s, early 20s, you think you have it figured out, mm -hmm. but you don't yet, you know? <laughs> so like, I think that there are so many good things happening here, and I think that we're starting to get a sense of place and pride, mm -hmm. uh, and we're carrying ourselves differently, and people, people are taking risks. Yeah. And I don't think that you saw nearly as much of that five years ago, mm -hmm. but now look around, you know, people are popping open stores, mm -hmm. um, you know, restaurants, um, breweries, they're opening up service companies, they're doing things um, that, that they're putting, you know, their time, their futures, and their capital at risk to build something um, because they believe. Right. That sounds like something that a 20-year-old mm -hmm. kid that mm -hmm. has the world by the tail is going to go do, right? It's true. And that's beautiful. Um, now, you know, 10 years down the road, they'll figure out what all we didn't know about ourselves and right. we'll keep growing, but um, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I do too. What's your favorite project in recent oh, memory? Don't recent ask memory. That. Recent memory. Because I know there's probably too many. You know, I'm not going to answer that one. Um, that's like asking okay. what's my favorite child. True. Um, but, but I mean, I will give you a slight tweak on that. Um, what's interesting for me is that I tend to not remember the projects that go really smoothly and beautifully. Huh. Uh, I tend to remember the projects that were really painful. Uh, and so I don't know if there's this strange masochistic portion of me, but like the things that either went off the rails completely mm -hmm. or were so close to failure or had some massive component of failure in it, but then we got out the other side. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that, that I remember. And, uh, you know, I, I have a favorite while we're working on it. I can get really, really interested in it. Like this and, is the best ever. Yeah, and then as soon as it's done, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, it's nice. like the quintessential, like, hand the ball to the ref and, like, move to the next thing. And, yeah. And I kind of think that that's maybe why we are who we are, too, is that, you know, that was cool, 
what's next? What are we going to do that's never been seen or done before again, yeah, right? Let's go so break like, new ground again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you just kind of get in that cycle. And I think mm -hmm. that that's frustrating to some people at times. Like, hey, let's take a bigger pause or like let's celebrate things. Mm -hmm. But it's not honestly really how my mind works. I'm like, okay, cool, check. Yeah. Like, what's next? In, in sports, they say that, you know, even like at the highest level, athletes and coaches never remember the wins. Yeah. They just remember the heartbreaking losses. Yeah. You know, but, but I don't, I mean, some of them are heartbreaking, right? Mm -hmm. But I strangely remember those problems kind of fondly. So, I mean, the analogy that I would give on that is like, uh, you know, Let's, let's say we're taking a road trip, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your family, you're going on vacation, and everybody's all psyched, like, we're going to the Grand Canyon. We're going to the Grand Canyon. It's gonna be awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, let's go to the Grand Canyon. And so you get in your car, pile everybody in there, and you start hauling ass mm -hmm. west. Yeah. And all you can focus on is getting to that big hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. And when you get there, you know what? You look over the side, you're like, oh, cool, it's a big hole. <laughs> yeah. Everybody gets back in the car and piles back. Like, you 10 years from now will not really talk about your trip to the Grand Canyon. Right. However, if on the way you have a blowout, right. somebody rear ends you, some strange, you know, bohemian person befriends you, takes right. you to, you know, an Indian reservation where your car is repaired, right. you know, you have amazing food, all of these things that all seemed at the time like this huge catastrophe, right. that is the story you will tell again and again and again because it's etched into your brain. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, true. even like that, like when we're doing projects or you know work, those are the things that I remember and I remember them strangely fondly mm -hmm. uh, as I retell that story. And, and probably the stories get embellished over the years or whatever, you know, where, you know, now some hitchhiker met us and, yeah. you know, but, but those are the things that are amazing. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, that is exactly what we're trying to do for these companies, right? Yeah. We're trying to create a moment between that brand and a consumer mm -hmm. that stops them in their tracks. Something that is so far askew from what they're used to seeing or experiencing that it gets etched into their brain, right. you know? I mean, if you flash back, I mean, you remember, like, I don't know, my memory doesn't doesn't hold video it holds still mm. photographs and mm. then there's like a caption and a story below it mm -hmm. that honestly I probably write on the fly right so like you know I couldn't tell you all of the things and have like this video picture of like my kids getting born right but I do have this this photograph of still that images. moment you yeah. know I have photographs of these projects I have photographs of key things mm. in my life that's that's what we want to create yeah. So the story that I keep feeling like you might get to is about the self-promotional Santa Claw. Oh, yeah. And how that sort of had to come through some troubles of maybe not hitting a deadline. Uh, yeah, it didn't hit a deadline. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be the Santa Claw. Um, what was it supposed to be? It was just supposed to be a giant claw machine. Uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a few of us um, sitting around like beer 30 on a Friday. Um, our kids were younger than that. That project's pretty old, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and um, I don't know if this is bad parenting or not, but I think it was like that phase in your life where a weekend comes, you're kind of exhausted. You and your wife and your kids like just want some food. And we were going to like, um, you know, I don't know, it was like a bar that served food, right? And they had one of those claw machines. Yeah. And there was this weird thing where it was like your kids, 
are over there interacting with it, like completely mesmerized. Yep. You're debating, you know, should I get a beer? Or should I get another beer? You yep. know, is this cool? Um, but, you know, we were talking about it and kind of joking about it uh, at Real Art on Friday. And, you know, one of the guys said, well, of course, right? Because claw machines are freaking cool. Like, who doesn't like it? My kids are obsessed with them. You know, and we're yeah. like, well, if they made adult claw machines, like, you know you'd be stuck playing it, too. And we're like, well, that's what we should do. We should make an adult-sized claw machine, right? And it should be full of, like, adult stuff. Right. And then we're like, well, maybe it should be bigger than that, right? Right. Um, and so the conversation kind of ended there. And I remember, like, thinking about it the next day, I was working on the house or something and I, I picked up the phone and I talked to Pat, I was like, dude, you know, we should actually do that. It would be funny and we'll just do it as a self-promotional piece because uh, at that point in time we were doing like one fantastical, like crazy thing a year mm -hmm. to just kind of drive, you know, awareness about the agency. So we're like, yeah, let's do it. So planned it all out, started doing it, um, started building it and like many things uh, that we do internally, you know, client project gets in the way and so it right. pushes, it pushes. Um, and we're like, well, you know, we were going to launch it for Christmas. It was, you know, we were going to, the storyline was, what does Santa do uh, with everything that the elves make for Christmas, but that nobody asks for? Yep. It was like, you know, he's got a backlog of these crappy gifts. That nobody wants. He's like, well, he'll give it to us and you can win it in the Santa Claw. Yeah. Um, and so that's how we did it. But, but we ended up kind of tweaking the story a little bit and then pushing it out and launching it in January. And it was one of those things where we launch it uh, like a lot of things, and, and the only way that you could play it, right? You logged onto a website, uh, you would take control of this massive. Ended up being the Guinness World Book, like world record largest claw machine ever. That's awesome. Um, you know, you could take control of it, and if you pulled something out, we'd package it up and send it to you with a note from Santa from the North Pole. Yep, I played it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was one of those things like when you do something that is, you know. Um, you know, socially driven online that you're trying to build like, you know, earned media around and hype. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I hate the word viral, but you want it to take off. Sure. You never know, right? Yeah. Um, but it's like a lot of projects where you kind of want that to happen, but when it does, then you learn everything about it that you did wrong, right. that you didn't plan for. Right. And, and that's what happened with that. So like, um, you know, it's like one user, three users, 10 users, 100, 1,000, and then basically it all breaks. Um, right. So we had to take it down pretty much like the night after we launched it. The guys recoded a little bit, put it back up, and then it ran for uh, three months solid, 24-7. And pretty much during that entire time, day or night, it had an eight-hour wait. So you would log on in your browser, and we didn't even build a back door for it because we thought, hey, it'd be cool if a few thousand people play this, right? Right. No, I mean, it was Insane. It had 27 million impressions. Yeah, yeah. And growing. Um, yeah, it was it was out of hand. It's so. insane. So the, the story goes that we were trying to hit a Christmas deadline, right? Yeah. And then it became apparent that we couldn't hit it. Right. Or, or we had to think of it something else. And the story was told to me that um, Chris asked for some time to digest. Uh, that happens every now and then, yeah. So what do you do when you digest? Is that where the... The, the maker, problem solver, puzzle, putter together comes out of you? Um, Where do you go to digest and how does that happen? It's altered over the years. Um, you know, for the most part, I need to kind of be in that sort of trance state. I think I used to self-induce it by staying up way too late. Um, you know, I am a procrastinator at heart, you know, I will put things off until I have to make decisions because I'd rather spend all that time like taking in information 
and then like laying it all up and then because because I, I tend to think quickly or I think best quickly. I'm like, boom, 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 boom. Here's where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. But I question it if I have more time on the backside. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I will set up a scenario where I can ruminate or take some time or think about things. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking in more information and I'm letting some things kind of stew until like the last moment when I'm just like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Because mm-hmm. um, then I can't question it. Right. So, you know, when I was really younger, uh, out of necessity, because I was just trying to get stuff done, but, but also I felt like my most creative time was between like nine o'clock when I'd come back into work and like 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then- 9 p.m.? I, yeah. So you'd go home, family, I dinner, promised my wife I would always be home uh, at or around six, particularly when we had young kids. So we'd eat together. Um, I would try to read to them. I would usually fall asleep in bed. They'd wake me up. I'd finish a book. And yeah. then, you know, 8 o'clock comes around, and when we lived down in the Oregon District, I'd either walk back down to the office mm-hmm. or when we moved a little bit south of town, then I'd drive back in and work. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done things like that where I'm almost, like, kind of sleep-deprived, which mm-hmm. is kind of trance-like. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sounding really weird and hokey. It's actually um, normal. I mean, professional athletes are very sleep-deprived. Yeah. And, and they trance like into that mode where they take a quick power nap and then they go perform at yeah. the highest possible level. It's like then when that moment strikes and I can't tell you when it's going to be, then I just kind of like, I'm almost like manic in like being able to figure something out mm-hmm. uh, and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, like even now, like if I'll go into work on a weekend and I know I have to come up with a concept for something. Uh, you know, I'll be talking to Joni in the morning. She'll say, like, you know, when are you going to be home? I'm like, I don't know. But if I tell you now, then it's going to ruin everything, right. right? So, like, I'm best if I don't have an end. Mm-hmm. So then I can kind of fart around as long as I need to because, like, an idea, a concept for something only takes a split second. Right. But when are you going to get to it? Exactly. And if I have an end window, mm-hmm. then the pressure to come up with it in that I can't get in the right frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Makes sense? Yeah, totally. It sounds a lot like a couple other things. I mean, I almost wonder because of the creatives, and, and I don't know how it works, like when a, when a converse comes in and you have to create something for them to help them be discovered and remembered. I almost think of, and it could be totally off, but like SNL, uh-huh. how they have all these talented creative writers, and they're all just pitching sketches. Yeah. And Lauren or somebody is like that one. Yeah. You know what I mean? I almost picture real art like that where everyone's just like taking a shot at something. Is it's that it's oftentimes it very much like that. So mm-hmm. like, you know, all the designers, the, you know, the account side, like everybody that's, that's a part of that project, you know, gets briefed uh, on what the goal is and what the, the rails that they have to stay within are. And, you know, then they'll just generate ideas. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I think that for our process, rather than having like, you know, long, day-long sessions with people, um, we tend to, you know, kick off, then give people space to like mm-hmm. use their own process, then we'll bring all of their ideas back together, we'll kind of, as a group, vet them or build on them or whatever, and then let them do it again. Let them do that a few times until there's this big list. Mm-hmm. And then depending upon who's kind of leading that project, whether, you know, it's somebody on the team or whether it's me, then 
we do kind of go down through it and just go that one, that one, that one. Cool. And here's where we want to tweak each one of those so that they, they line up and solve all the problems. That's awesome. Well, I think people are going to really enjoy hearing kind of some of the behind the scenes. I think people see real art from afar and just think what a, what a neat place, whether it's cool or exciting or whatever, but just a neat place. And um, I'm sure there's a bunch of people in town who are like, man, if I could work anywhere, I would work there. So it's going to be fun for Thanks, them to man. hear about it. So. Yeah, right on. I had thank a good time. you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, share it with your friends. Uh, take a screenshot on your phone. Post it on Instagram to your story or to your feed. Post a shot on Facebook. Please help us spread the word about New Dayton. You can also subscribe to the podcast. You can leave us a review. And I want to give a special thank you to Katie Matthews for producing and editing the podcast. And a thank you and a shout out to John Waldron, who created all of the music for the podcast. Also, last thing, if you have a guest recommendation, please connect with me on Instagram, chip underscore James, or email me at chipjames at gmail.com. Oh, and one last, last thing, check out the website, choosingdayton.com forward slash new Dayton. Thanks again.